Uh, as I revealed last week, I have spent lots of time in, in my study of this particular book uh, in more recent months, kind of in preparation for this, but uh, every week uh, I just I spend I don't know how much time getting ready for these special times that we have on Sunday morning. I've learned a lot. Uh, I don't know about you. I'm hoping that you have and that you will look well and that you will take the things that we have learned and will apply them to the manner in which you live your life. It makes a huge difference. When I was in seminary, I had the very great privilege of sitting under some of the most profound and well-known ministers, preachers, theologians of our time. Many of you, you know that R.C. Sproul passed away recently. I had R.C. Sproul for three or four different classes, had personal conversations with R.C. Sproul. I have a letter from R.C. Sproul of encouragement that has meant a lot to me. I also had the privilege of studying under Sinclair Ferguson, whom some of you have probably heard of and some of you haven't, but he's one of those Scots which gives him a leg up on all the rest of us because I think people will listen to Scottish people talk all day just to listen to them talk because we love the accent so much. And that's true for Irish people too, Ollie. He's very well known today in Reformed circles. I actually had him for a number of classes when I was in seminary too, another great privilege that I had to study under him. But I was reading some comments this week that he made in in regard to this particular passage of Scripture. And what he said was this. He said, when I was a teenager, I I first found this, this golden nugget, this jewel of Scripture in the Bible. And he said, every Sunday morning since that day, I have gone to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and 6, and I read it every Sunday for the purpose of helping to prepare me for worship coming. What a challenge. I'm tempted to read back through everything we studied last week, but uh, we're going to be pressed for time if I do that. But just remember this vision that uh, that John is 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 having at the at the the hands of Jesus, uh, and that it opens with Jesus summoning him, beckoning him to come up through the open door that leads, we want to say, into heaven, but I just want to challenge us with the idea that it's, it's really more than what our concept of heaven is. It is the center of all existence, whether it be physical or spiritual, that what John is doing is he's entering into an entirely different realm than he's lived his life in. It's the realm of God in his greatness and in his glory. It's the, it's the realm of angels. It's the realm of the church triumphant. It is every bit as real as the realm, this physical realm that you and I live and breathe in. Every day. And he saw this vision of God sitting on his throne. And ruling over everything. He is an omnipotent God. That means he is almighty. 
He's omnipresent, which means this, that maybe there's a great special sense that he is present on this heavenly throne, but at the same time, he is also present everywhere. There is a where. He is there. He sees all. He knows all. He rules over all. He has power and authority over all. And then we read this description of the throne, of the different kinds of gems that were there, and the brilliance and the brightness of the glory that would have been reflected from them. And that sea of glass that separated him from those 12 thrones upon which the elders sit, at least part of the time they sit. We're going to see it's a regular habit of theirs of getting up. They don't just stay seated. He also, in this vision, had this vision of these four creatures, these angelic creatures. This sounds very much like the seraphim, cherubim that you find in chapter 6 of Isaiah and the first chapter of the prophet Ezekiel and in other places in Ezekiel. Angelic beings that minister directly to God as he sits on his throne on high. We're going to pick up in verse 8. Still talking about those four living creatures. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will, they existed and were created. Stop there for right now. I mean, it really almost sounds like we said last week is something from a a science fiction book. I mean, have you ever, even in your wildest dreams, ever pictured any creature so incredible as those being described here? And I do want to challenge us with the idea that what is going on here is there's an attempt to put the very things of God into human language in a way that it makes some explanation to us. But at the same time, we need to understand that the things that John is literally looking upon are undescribable. Human language falls far short of telling us what the reality of the situation is. These creatures, they have six wings. We've already talked about each one of them had a head that was different. We talked about those last week. Six wings. In Isaiah, the seraphim there only have four wings. So you just need to understand that there is a little bit of, uh, not disagreement, but there is a little difference you're going to find between Isaiah and Revelation. 
And there's actually some variation as far as Ezekiel goes. But there is a huge amount of overlapping between those three passages that talk about the same basic thing. That in Isaiah we're told that those six wings, the two of them are used to cover their feet, two of them are used to cover their eyes, and two of them are used to fly. Full of eyes all around. Very similar, you find the same thing in Ezekiel to their eyes, which just tells us that they see everything, they see in every direction at the same time. There's a sense in which they are God's eyes. Day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Can you imagine spending all of your time doing nothing but flying around God's throne and saying, holy, holy, holy. We talked about the otherness of God, the holiness of God a few weeks ago, but we just need to understand that holiness basically is everything that separates God apart from everything else. Notice here, they don't say holy is the Lord. They don't even say holy, holy is the Lord. They say holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We understand this, and we use this even in our common language, but it's a very common practice in Scripture to see things repetitiously presented. Like Jesus saying, he doesn't say truly, he says truly, truly, I say to you. We need to understand, and you need to be on the lookout for this as you're studying the Bible. And that's when you see things repeated. That means they're really important. So this God is holy. Another thing that comes with uh, the idea of holiness is purity. That there is no corruption about him at all. Just magnificent pureness and glory. He is almighty. That means he's omnipotent. In his hand is all power. Period. Now he can give power to other he can give power to other beings. He can give power to angels. He can give power to people. But we understand that ultimately he is the sole authority over all things. Whether those things or those beings accept that and acknowledge that or not, it does not void him of his authority and power over everything and everyone. He is the one who was and who is and who is to come. Jesus, this has been ascribed to Jesus already in this book of Revelation. Something that can only be ascribed to God himself. So we need to understand many things. And one of those is this, is that Jesus is God. You do know that right. He's the God man that he is God and he is man at the same time. Making him the perfect 
redeemer of sinners like us. The only one able, the only one capable of bringing holy God into relationship and fellowship with sinful man. He is eternal. He has always been. He is now. He will always be. Time is an invention of God, is a creation of God. He lives outside of time. He lives apart from time. Time has no bearing on him whatsoever. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast the crowns before the throne. We're going to see even more of this in... Chapter number 5. Because we've just seen part of the picture that is going to be painted in this particular vision. So far it includes those elders, but it goes beyond that to myriads and myriads of angels. And beyond that to every creature in existence. All of them worshiping God. Just remember, this is not... So much a picture of the throne room of God as this is a a picture of the way things are in all of existence with God at the very center. And everything, every being outside of that, worshiping him. Now, like we said last week, some people might say, well, that sounds to me like God's very prideful. That he just he just loves for people to praise him. He loves to to, to be worshipped and uh, and etc. So he went out and he created a lot of beings to do nothing but do that for him, just to stroke his ego. We need to understand. And I say that a lot. I'm trying to strip that from from uh, my preaching because I know I say it probably too much. Uh, that God has created beings but these angelic creatures know something that you and I struggle with now but they know it definitively there's no doubt about it as far as they go that is because of what they see because of what they've heard because of what they know that God is, this is what God is worthy of. They don't give him worship begrudgingly. They give it to him because it's the natural response for them in regard to what they experience. And they worship him unceasingly. Now, this is a challenge for you and I, or you and me, rather. Because it's easy for us to categorize our life or into different compartments. I mean, it really is. 
where we want to put this in this compartment and that's in that compartment and this is in this other compartment. They're not really related to each other and, you know, things like that. But worship. Worship is not something we just do on Sunday morning. Worship is not just something we do. If you have a quiet time, part of that quiet time is worship. But worship is a characteristic that really, in the perfect world, would be part of everything we do. That when we wash those dishes, in part, we would be doing it in worship of God. Think about all the time that we waste. Yesterday morning, I was riding around on the, on the lawnmower. When I was a kid, we used to mow all the time. We had, my mom and dad had six acres, and we mowed four of it every single week, either me or my brother. We had a tractor to do it. But it meant six or eight hours on a tractor every week for me or my brother. But crazy, uh, I, for some reason, for a long time, I loved it, but I'm getting to where I hate to mow. But what an opportunity to worship. I mean, you have to make sure you're going in the right direction and you're not, you, you, know, you know, mowing down things you don't want to mow down and, you know, cutting into your neighbor's yard or going through the woods or something like that. It doesn't take a whole lot of attention to mow grass. What an opportunity to worship God. And sometimes I do that. Sometimes I'm out there singing hymns when I'm mowing the grass. I can't tell you I do it all the time. But what opportunities does God give us constantly in our daily routine that we can do those things and at the same time have a sense of worship about us? Well, you've heard people say this, that uh, in the new, new heavens and new earth, when, when Christ establishes everything in newness, that we will worship him eternally. Does that mean we're going to be standing around the throne for all of eternity, worshiping God? I don't think so, because life in the, in the, in the new earth, in some ways, is going to be very similar to the life that we have now. But everything that we do in that kingdom will have an aspect to worship in it. Everything. That will be the reason, basic reason, we do everything that we do. Is to worship our creator. Notice here that these 24 elders, that they fall down before him who sits on the throne. Falling down before God is something that very commonly happens in Scripture when people are confronted with God in all of his glory and magnificence, at least as far as humans can conceive it. It happened to Moses. It happened to Ezekiel. It happened to John, the apostle, at the beginning of this book of Revelation when he saw that vision of Jesus. To fall down before him. When we designed this church, most of you know this, that the fellowship hall was not here. That where that big door is down on the end of the hallway, that used to be where the building stopped. So this room was a multi-purpose room. 
Everything, every big gathering that we had, we did in here. Now, now on brunch Sunday, we didn't take the time to break down the room and, and all of that. We, we put halls up, every, or tables up, everywhere in the building we could put a table. The nursery, the classroom, sometimes even in the hall. So people have a place to sit down and eat. That's the primary reason we have removable seats from this sanctuary. To do what we did, the way we did it, and this is the common thing today. It leaves something out. Something that most of you older people, you remember in the churches that you grew up in. There's something that's missing from here that you would have found in most churches 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago. And that is kneeling benches. Attached to the pews. And in part of the service, very often prayers would be done with people on their knees. Now, some of you are going, I'm so old now. If I got down on my knees, I probably couldn't get up again. Now, I may fit in that category. But kneeling before God, I think today is something that is sadly missing from our worship. ever get down on your knees to pray seriously R.C. Sproul told us one time that he, he doesn't get down on his knees he lays flat on his face on the ground very often when he prays do you understand what it, it symbolizes something it symbolizes the idea that you are humbling yourself utterly before almighty and authoritative God They're throwing down their crowns. Their golden crowns as described in a few verses before this. They're throwing their crowns down around the glassy sea. I just want you to know something that this is said about the elders. not told about every believer that happens to be in heaven. Like the song leads us to believe. That you and I are going to be casting down our golden crowns before the glassy sea. So these guys are given crowns, which gives them authority over people. It means they're ruling. They're ruling over people. Just remember, they're doing that before God. They're answerable directly to him for what they do. But notice here, they throw their crowns down. Why? Does God need the gold? Well, I can't say for certain. This is one of those things that's kind of mystery, but I would say there's ground to believe maybe this is part of it. And that is, and it's, it's an act of utter and absolute submission to him on their part. What they're saying is this. Is it's not about me, it's not about us. We are rulers, we rule over the tribes of Israel, etc., etc. But that's not by our authority, it's by God's authority. He is the one where power is, He is the important one, He is the center of all things. 
He is worthy of everything. Even golden crowns. Have you ever wondered what the word worship really means? In other words, what would be a good biblical definition you could derive for worship? What does it encompass? Well, verse 11 may be a very good definition of it for you and I, you and me. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. It's an acknowledgement of God's worthiness. to be glorified, to be honored, to be called the Almighty. For what reason? Because thou didst create all things and because of thy will they existed and were created. In other words, everything that is, is simply because God made it to be. Whether you're talking about the trees outside, you're talking about the sky above us, you're talking about people, you're talking about angels. Everything exists for one reason, and that is because God made it to be. Otherwise, it would not be at all. Tempted to go on. I have a hard time stopping. My intention was to get into chapter 5, but we obviously are not going to do that this morning, so we will hold off. Uh, I just hope that you're, you're getting as much from this as I am. I, I, you know, I'm sitting there on Monday and I'm wondering why in the world I put this off for so long. Because I'm like you, I'm like a lot of people. Revelation scared me. And it's one thing to read through Revelation because you're not going to be accountable to other people for what you teach in regard to it or anything like that if you're just a casual reader reading it. But if it puts, if you're in the position of being a teacher, there's a huge burden placed on your shoulders. And it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of study and all of that to get to the place where you're confident that what you're saying is scriptural. That it's weighed in the balance. And it's God's truth. So I hope you guys are praying for me every week. Because I'm digging into the books. And it's been really good for me. And I hope it's really good for you. Because we're going to keep on plugging and chugging. So glory to God. In honor and power. 
you had a golden crown, would you cast it down? 